Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Exclusion becomes the exception rather than the norm, which it is now. Um, but that has to come from a kind of like an equal collective conversation. It can't come from, you know, uh, a sort of paternalist, top down, you know, keep out because we know what's good for you kind of uh, a dynamic. You know, we all have to be involved in that conversation about where exclusion should apply. And if we've agreed that together and it's in that spirit, I think they'll be respected more as well. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this Dispatch with John Moses. Dispatches are our shorter form content that touch on a specific subject or theme. John is a writer and holds a PhD in geo-humanities. He's also a campaigner for Right to Roam. In this Dispatch, I talk to John about the issues that we have regarding access to wild space in the UK and why it needs to change. We also talk about civil trespass, what it is, how to do it and why you should. Okay, over to John Moses. Thanks very much for taking the time to do this. I think it would just be, as usual, good for you to start by introducing yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, and maybe um, what it was that led you to being kind of responsible for having these sorts of conversations. Uh, my name is Jonathan Moses. I'm a national organiser at the Right to Rome campaign, uh, which has been running for just over two years now. Uh, before that, I was an academic and I'm still also a freelance writer. Um, so I do that on the side too, uh, hopefully putting together a book at the moment. Um, but yeah, basically at the moment, uh, I kind of do a little bit of everything for Right to Rome, but probably the most exciting part of the job is organising uh, very kind of colourful and delightful mass trespass events, normally on large aristocratic states across England. Ace, and how have you ended up where you are now? What was your journey through to kind of understanding the issues and deciding to, you know, step off the path and get involved at this level? So I was actually helping a friend set up a charity called Lawyers for Nature, uh, which basically is a campaign to, uh, well, it's not a campaign, actually, it's an organisation that helps protect grassroots nature defenders. And it sort of spurred out of the Sheffield tree protests, uh, which your listeners uh, may know about. Um uh, and they were also trying to introduce uh, rights of nature to the conversation in the UK. So the idea that kind of trees, woodlands, uh, rivers might have kind of legal standing. Um, and Nick Hayes, who wrote the book of Trespass, was kind of effectively our first fundraiser. He did a beautiful kind of uh, one of his characteristic uh, ink prints uh, of a poem by Robert McFarlane, which was about the tree protests and the proceeds went to this charity we were setting up. So we sort of on each other's radar a little bit uh, and just kind of got chatting and then ended up in Epping Forest around a bonfire, uh, which is how 
one always ends up meeting Nick. Uh, <laughs> uh, and just in the kind of like the, the the low light of the night with uh, Guy Shrub Soul as well, uh, we just we just really hit it off and realised we were on the same page and that all the issues that we were thinking about uh, in that organisation were absolutely entangled with the kind of things that the Right to Own campaign were thinking about too. Uh, and it's kind of just slowly escalated from there, really. And so within the parameters of this conversation, or more broadly, if you think it's relevant, you know, what are the issues? Uh, well, our headline stats is that 92% of England uh, is off limits to the public. Um, so there's only 8% of access land, uh, which we got through the Countryside and Rights Away Act uh, in 2000. Uh, and there's only 3% of access to rivers uh, in the country as well. Um, so pretty much everywhere we go, we're kind of in a prison of our own making. Yes, we have uh, a footpath network. Um, that you know has some uh, in some parts of the country is is quite good uh, and gives you reasonable access. In other parts of the country, actually where I live, uh, it's very poor. Uh, and in reality, if you want any kind of relationship to the landscape that surrounds you, you have to trespass. Um, and I think we've just kind of normalised that idea that actually kind of sticking to the beaten path is all we deserve. Uh, and I think the kind of crisis of alienation that we we feel in our lives and and in Britain at the moment is partly rooted in that kind of utter disconnection from most of the land and the landscape around us. Um, you know, I live in the uh, Welsh borders, so I live in kind of beautiful uh, leafy countryside. Uh, and yet, when I walk out of my door, I can barely access the river that I've grown up to next to most of my life um you know it's uh, there's about five minutes of footpath access along it where i live uh, and otherwise you're you're punted off and it's uh, yeah it's it's no trespassing signs and, and keep out but and you know I, I should give you a disclaimer which i maybe should have given before we started but like i'm obviously on your team so when i'm being difficult know that it's through kindness but um <laughs> you know it, it kind of happened to me in the lake district i moved there when i was 16 and i thought it was this incredible beautiful landscape and it's over the years that i've realized that actually it's broken in so many ways and that's a different conversation for a different day but do not think that most people do have enough you know they can get out with their dog they can go for a walk they can go to the beach whatever it is is that not enough uh i mean a, there's a huge postcode lottery uh, around that, right? So, you know, uh, and as I said, if, if even I, living in kind of the Welsh borders out in the open countryside, cannot really access nature on my doorstep without driving or cycling quite a distance. Um, you know, I watch kind of the dog walkers nearby. They go around the same patch of fields basically in just loops for 10 minutes because there's kind of nowhere else to go, actually, unless, again, they get in a car. Um, so that's the case for me out in the Welsh countryside. Imagine what it's like if you live on the fringe uh, of a city. Uh, you know, imagine what it's like if you live in, I mean, you know, East Anglia and uh, Suffolk, where I, you said you live as well. I mean, uh there's, there's pretty limited access to most of what's around you. Um, and it also means that our experience of the natural world is kind of defined by constant movement, essentially. Like the footpath is something that kind of guides you and takes you along. And it's like being on a kind of conveyor belt through the countryside. And yeah, you could sit down for a picnic by the fringes, but it's, it, it's not conducive, I think, to that kind of idle exploration uh, and the, a kind of just a being in the world, I suppose, that comes with walking across um, open country. Yeah, I think that's one of the key points I wanted to hit at today is, you know, footpaths are by their nature linear. You know, are we really in any way exploring or going on a journey or trusting ourselves to make decisions? Yeah, precisely. Uh, you know, I mean, Nick has this lovely phrase that, you know, the footpath is a, a thin strip of legitimacy crossing a sea of wonder, uh, which got read out in Parliament recently to uh, <laughs> a rather bemused uh, Tory bench <laughs> on the opposite side. Um 
but yeah, I mean, for me, you know, the, I have nothing against the footpath network. It's obviously brilliant. And that, but in many ways, you know, it's, and in many ways it's been chipped away actually uh, as well. So that's the other part of this that you look on the, uh, the old maps of any private estate, you'll see that actually there used to be a lot of footpaths that have been just slowly kind of Harry Potter out of existence uh, over the generation. Um, but for me to really like know and relate to the landscape that's around me, uh, I'm not getting that through the footpath, you know. Um, I have, you know, I have a deep kind of love and passion for rivers. Uh, and as I said, you know, for me, it was only last year, actually, when I first trespassed the whole length of the river that I live by, um, that I discovered all these kind of amazing spots that I now return to again and again and again. You know, there's, there's a sort of small estate near me. It has this kind of ergonomic rock that's like shaped like the contours of your back, basically. So you can sort of slide into the water and sit there in like a little throne and the kind of dippers scoot by that sort of frog's eye level. Uh, and, you know, that place has brought me so much joy and healing since I found it a year ago. But for the previous 12 years, I didn't even know it existed. Um, you know, and there's no damage or harm from me being in that place. And yet it, it adds a kind of huge part of my relationship to that river. You know, for me, it's become an almost kind of spiritual place. That's where I kind of sit just to be with the river. Um, you know that's not what a footpath can provide yeah and again all the disclaimers around difficult questions but do you think that if you know that i think there's 80 million of us now in the uk is that right um if i think a bit less but yeah <laughs> 70 is as well like yeah. something like that if we all had access to this these places you know would they remain the same is there a kind of sustainability issue to trespassing uh, I would say that trespassing makes our being in the landscape more sustainable. So the problem we have is not people's presence necessarily in the landscape, it's concentration. So um, you get kind of these honey honeypot sites where people kind of everyone flocks to them, drives to them, big car park, you know, hundreds of dogs every day, uh, perhaps in kind of delicate uh, ecological areas like Wisman's Wood, for instance, uh, in Dartmoor. Uh, and the kind of hyper concentration of people in those honeypot places can be uh, a potential danger or potential ecological threat sometimes that threat is overstated to be honest but it can be present um so our hope is that the right to roam actually will ease the pressure on honeypot sites uh and will make people live more locally as well you know rather than kind of driving off to somewhere you know 30 minutes an hour away you know two hours to a national park whatever it is actually exploring what's on your doorstep and being more drawn to uh, kind of those local connections um that can bring you as much joy and satisfaction as you know kind of boshing your way up snowden or whatever yeah, and and this is something I maybe thought we'd talk about at the end, but it feels relevant now. Do you think there are parts of the UK or England where we should, you know, kind of put a fence up, literally or not, to say actually, you know, do stay out for environmental reasons? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are really sensitive uh, wildlife sites where we have, you know, birds that are, you know, are kind of on the limit at the moment. Those kind of areas should at least have seasonal restrictions, if not complete restrictions. Uh, and actually, in the Right to Roam campaign, we, our view basically is that once you kind of open out access or make access the default rather than an exclusion, then you can have a kind of sensible democratic conversation about what areas should be excluded. Um, so, you know, exclusion becomes the exception rather than the norm, which it is now. Um, but that has to come from a kind of like an equal collective conversation. It can't come from, you know, uh, a sort of paternalist, top down, you know, keep out because we know what's good for you kind of uh, a dynamic. You know, we all have to be involved in that conversation about where exclusion should apply. And if we've agreed that together and it's in that spirit, I think they'll be respected more as well. Yeah. OK, cool. And, and you know, so to, to kind of get into the meat of it, like what is trespass? Uh, well, 
trespass, as we like to say, is their word. Um, we call it just going for a walk. Uh, but uh, the act of trespass is, yeah, kind of infringing on someone else's land, um, basically with your mere presence. Uh, and in the law, that's kind of codified almost as a sort of attack on the person themselves. Uh, and I think that speaks to a lot of the psychology that feeds into the, d- the dynamics and the relationships you have with landowners and the kind of confrontations that, that can ensue. Um, but for me, yeah, it's, it, it's just going for a walk in a place you're not supposed to. And there are, you know, I think it's important to mention that there are different sort of ranks of trespass, aren't there? You know, there's there are sensitive military sites and train stations, etc. And then there's the woods nearby. <laughs> yeah, if you uh, sort of try trespassing in sort of, you know, Windsor Park or something like that, then you know, expect a sort of zip bag to be dropped over your head and, you know, <laughs> to be carted out to a sort of CIA black site somewhere. Um, that's not literally true. But yeah, uh, there, there are some places that are very uh, unwise to trespass in, like sensitive military places, uh, some areas related to the royal family and so on. Um, that's probably kind of less significant, I think, to most people's daily lives, though. Um, the the distinction that I think is important for trespassing uh, is between kind of civil trespass and criminal trespass. Um, so the the famous sign, trespassers will be prosecuted, is actually a bit of a lie. So trespass is, is currently a civil offence within the law. Um, that means just the fact of being on someone else's land. Um, in theory, they could take you to civil court, uh, in practice, that would be kind of very time consuming and costly uh, and unlikely to happen in reality. Um, the, the the distinction, though, is that if you commit any damage to the property, um, if you disrupt kind of lawful activity uh, or if you act in a kind of threatening or intimidating way uh, to the person who has rightful use and ownership of that land, um, then it becomes criminal trespass. And that is a criminal, obviously, a criminal offence um, where you could be prosecuted. Um so in the Right to Rome campaign, you know, we're, we're all about kind of uh, you know, peaceful, friendly interactions with the people that uh, we encounter on our trespasses uh, who have a variety of responses back to us. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're definitely calling for people when they trespass, make sure you're polite, you know, always be friendly, uh, never engage in any kind of like damaging or kind of violent behavior, all of which would you know, obviously undercut the kind of arguments we're making, which is that we just want to be in nature. Yeah. And... I think, you know, you've touched on it before with your conversation around rivers near where you live, but why should we do it? You know, there's two sides to that. I think there's one is personal and one is kind of the bigger picture of why we should do it. On a personal level, um, I think it's really important to be connected to the landscape that's around you. Um, you know, it's it's transformative, I think, to understand um, the kind of dynamics of the ecology that's around you to live and feel kind of in tandem with nature and the natural world. You know, just the act of going swimming in my river every day, it really roots me in that landscape. I understand what's happening to the river uh, and I love the river. Uh, and that speaks, I think, to the bigger stuff that goes on, which is that by by having these relationships with the places around us, we see when they're being threatened. We see when the damage is happening and we become slowly to become advocates of those places. Um, so, you know, one of the things I, I live in the Mono Valley and the Welsh borders, but I'm near the Wye Valley and the River Wye is one of the few 3% of rivers that you do have a right of access to, a right of navigation. Uh, there's a sort of statutory bill of parliament and I think from the 17th century that uh, facilitates that. It is no coincidence that, the Save the Y campaign is one of the biggest, most dynamic uh, kind of river defence campaigns in the country because everyone uh, who lives in that area loves that river. They love that valley. They know it and they're acting to protect it. And that's been written into kind of generations and generations uh, of people walking it, swimming it, kayaking it, uh, fishing it, whatever. Um, 
and realizing when things are going wrong, even when all the regulatory bodies that were tasked to protect that river uh, were saying, oh, no, nope, nothing to see here, just just another normal algal bloom, you know, and everyone else knew straight away that that was, you know, basically bollocks uh, and they could see that the river wasn't healthy and there was something up. Uh, and lo and behold, of course, now it's, it's admitted and we do know what's happening uh, to that river with the kind of phosphate pollution and all the rest of it. Um, so for me, kind of access really is just the precondition to guardianship, to a kind of uh, a, a protection of the ecology and the natural world. And that for us is our passion in Right to Rome. You know, we're we're all kind of, yeah, we, you know, some of us were mountaineers and all the rest of it. But really, uh, it's it's ecology that drives us. That's what's our motivating force. It's not just about going uh, for a walk in a kind of shiny jacket. Um, it, it's something much bigger than that. Yeah, and that it, it, there's that cheesy David Attenborough line, which I love. Um, but it's the, the <laughs> people will never love um, what they haven't experienced and they won't protect what they don't love. I suppose that's the same Absolutely. thing, right? Yeah, and and so and so cheesy what, but true <laughs> cheesy but true yeah um so what about the bigger picture you know i think like with it's all well and good me going for a nice windy walk and having a nice time but what are we doing by doing it on mass uh we're highlighting why it matters um first and foremost so actually telling those personal individual stories about the uh the significance of, say, the guardianship that comes out of knowing what's going on in a local area, uh, the kind of physical and mental health benefits that it has for us as well. Um, but also to highlight really the, the extent of the exclusion that is around the country. Um, you know, 92% is a large part of England to be locked out of. Uh, and really, there's no legitimate or justifiable reason why that should be the case. You know, we shouldn't have to kind of live in these little um, sort of little kind of boxy prisons basically which is what my, the suburb I live in feels like sometimes um, when the kind of landscape is rich and it's all around us you know England is not full England is a is a still a wide open green country uh, and the more that we as I said the more we relate to it the more that we love it uh, and by doing it on mass I think we highlight some of the, those themes uh, and some of the injustices you know why should it be that uh, for instance um, yeah, the, the Duke of Somerset has a kind of 4,000 acre estate or why should it be that, uh, you know, there's 52,000 acres of the Cotswolds near me uh, that sits off limits to the public, uh, all of which we pay for, by the way, we get, you know, something in the region of, you know, half a million pounds of subsidies to these kind of estates every year. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense. There's no justification for it. Um, it's just something that we accept kind of out of politeness, it seems. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's time for that to change. Well, is that, I mean, that's the kind of shifting baseline syndrome, isn't it? Of like, this is all we've ever known because for our entire lives, that's what we've been told is the way. Um, you know, how have we got here? Uh, that's a, a thousand year old <laughs> question. But um, I mean, basically enclosure of the land has been a kind of, I mean, we've never owned the land. And by we, I mean the sort of collective public. Um, it's always been held in the hands of the elite by and large. Um, but we did have access and we did have rights to the land for a long period of time. And steadily over kind of generations and centuries, um, those rights were chipped away and the access was chipped away. So uh, this process that was called enclosure, which was basically the kind of privatisation of land where uh, which had kind of common usage and common rights and was managed in a common way, um, allowed kind of individual private landowners to accumulate more and more land put up there, you know, uh, originally kind of hedges to keep people out. Now it's the barbed wire fence. Um, but that process has happened. Um, 
with different kind of speeds. So, you know, it really kind of took off again in the late 18th century. Uh, there was enclosure happening before that, um, but that's when it really, really accelerated uh, and left us pretty much with the kind of landscape that we, we see today, which is, you know, rife with barbed wire, um, big hedgerows and keep out signs. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So how do we trespass? I realize that's a broad question. <laughs> um, simple as simple as hopping a fence, um, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, uh, so I... We'll look on all kinds of bits of mapping software because I'm a bit of a map nerd uh, and I'll identify areas that seem to be hugely absent from the, the footpath network uh, and I'll go exploring for them. And I do that kind of most weekends now um, just by myself to to see what's there. Um, so it, it's as simple as choosing a place on the map that has no existing access uh, that, or it may be a... Um, there may be some like open access land in the middle of an island that you can't actually get to by footpath. So just give yourself an objective, you know. Um, why don't I, that's an interesting uh, feature on the OS map. Why don't I go see what's going on there today? You know, give yourself, yeah, give yourself a, a reason and a rationale for going out. But I think it can, it can feel like a massive hurdle for people. You know, it's, it's all well and good, you and I, who feel like we're almost like, brave is the wrong word, but confident maybe enough to just hop the fence and face a landowner if we have to. You know, what about everybody who sat there thinking this does not, even if they agree in principle with what you're saying, they just don't feel confident enough to do so. How would you encourage them to do it? What's the baby step to get into this? So I would, I mean, firstly, I would say for people who are worried about it, uh, you know, I trespass pretty much every single week. Uh, I've been confronted maybe three times in my life um, by landowners. So actually the, the kind of the spectacle of confrontation that everyone's worried about is, is a rarity. Um, we in the Right to Roam campaign have kind of developed various kind of strategies to sort of manage the confrontation. So I think the more that you're sort of au fait and primed with those, those strategies, the more confident you feel going into those situations because you know what you're going to do and how you're going to react. Um, but really, uh, you know, the, the best way to do it is get us to do a, a skill workshop. So we, we've developed a kind of two hours of confidence building, basically, where we teach you your rights. Uh, we teach you uh, confrontation strategies. We do some role play around that. Uh, and then we teach you kind of how to map out uh, land around you and, and start the process of kind of trespassing and telling a story about the, the land that you're accessing. Um, so, yeah, drop a line to right to roam 2020 at gmail.com. Uh, call us in to do a Skillshare workshop and we'll, we'll come to your local area uh, and, yeah, off, offer you the, the chance to try and build that confidence and build those skills. Yeah. Yeah, great. And I think, you know, Nick's, obviously, Nick's latest book is kind of essentially a, a handbook of how, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So Nick's written this, uh, the sequel to the book of Trespass, The Trespasser's Companion. Uh, and it, yeah, it's a kind of toolkit on how to trespass and all the kind of arguments that uh, I've been making today you'll find in that book as well. And um, yeah, I think as well, it, it's really important for us to talk about kind of gender, race and potentially age in all of this. You know, we're both kind of, I'd say, young to middle aged white men. Um, we're kind of the classic stereotype of the more confident 
you know, user trespasser, as it were. And there are the horror stories which we may or may not go into today of, you know, two black guys going for a run and people thinking that they were criminals. How does gender and race play into all of this? Yeah, you're, abs- you're absolutely right that it's, you know, one thing for <laughs> me and you to be uh, at trespassing, you know, that confrontation potentially goes quite differently uh, if you're a person of colour. Um, so again, with the campaign, a whole kind of strand of our work is actually around uh, people who are kind of like excluded, I suppose, even more so from the countryside. Uh, and that's, we sort of go through, I guess, a kind of slower process uh, and how we approach that and do a lot more of the kind of preamble and confidence building um, stuff. You know, and this is kind of new exploratory work for us. So I'm not saying we're, we're getting it perfect. Um, but hopefully then actually, but that will lead up to more mass trust of it trespass events uh, that are kind of led by people of colour, uh, where you can build that kind of collective confidence together. Um, you know, and there are lots of organisations now, from Muslim hikers to Black Girls Hike, um, that are POC spaces, basically, um, to feel kind of build up that kind of confidence of being in the countryside. So I think that's a really great starting point and getting the kind of friends and connections uh, that might give you the confidence to do things on mass and do things together. Yeah. And without you and I role playing, you know, live, um, can you give me some examples of, you know, confrontations that might happen and how they tend to play out? Yeah. So you get kind of uh, all kinds of different attitudes from uh, landowners. I mean, the classic question is that is the are you lost, which is a sort of like slightly passive aggressive <laughs> kind of paternalist answer. Um, you know, we, we have kind of various different ways of responding to that, depending on uh, kind of what your own personality is and how the landowner is reacting to you. I mean, uh, my favorite one, I've, we give them sort of chess names. So the, the insouciant apple defense, uh, where you take a, take, always carrying an apple with you when you're trespassing, this is a kind of pro tip. Uh, and in the period of confrontation, just, just dust it on your jacket and start chomping it because nothing shows that you're more calm and more relaxed and more at ease in yourself than just quietly jumping on an apple while someone's shouting at you um so there are all kinds of different small strategies like that that kind of play with the power dynamic um there's other kind of more simple stuff as well you know like uh make sure you stand your ground where you, if you see the farmer or whatever be lining towards you you know don't run away stand your ground greet them uh, and greet them in kind of positive friendly terms you know set the tone of the conversation straight away um and you know explain honestly why you're there you know that you're not there to destroy things you're not there to kind of uh, infringe on that person or give them a hard time um you're there because you love the landscape you know and if you're kind of ecologically knowledgeable you know things about the land um start having those conversations like point out the things that you've seen in that day you know often some landowners either they love their land as well and they're actually kind of you can be drawn in they can be drawn into a conversation about that shared uh, love of the kind of the flora and the fauna that's around you um or they're actually not very knowledgeable about what's even there on their land so um i went uh, trespassing with a, a botanist called dave bangs who's this kind of uh, 70 year old sort of lean beaky man with a, a, a sort of fiery marxist temper uh, <laughs> uh, and he's a you know he's a super knowledgeable guy about ecology and when he gets challenged by land he's, he's like well look you know here's all this amazing stuff that i found you know you've got like triple si uh, grade quality bits of land here but you're not looking after it uh, and you know some landowners are actually slowly fascinated by the reality of what's there that they had no idea about you know yeah and do you think you know, I'm just speaking from personal experience here because without going into personal anecdotes, you know, the first time I was confronted, I did leave. And it was actually the right decision in hindsight to just, you know, I, it was almost like dipping my toe in the water. Somebody said, you can't be here. I was on farmland, essentially. I wasn't in the crops, you know, I was on the fringes. I had a dog, which makes them a little bit more upset. Um, 
And I did leave and it, it kind of gave me that opportunity to go home and reflect on the experience and look at how I dealt with it, you know, calmly. He was calm as well, this guy, but he did say, you know, get out basically. Is there anything wrong with that? You know, if you're looking at it from a personal perspective rather than the bigger picture, you know, on those rare occasions that we're confronted actually saying, okay, you know, I shouldn't be here, fine, I'll leave, I'll go. Yeah, that's that's an absolutely fine way to respond to that situation. You know, um, as, as I said, actually, that, that moment of confrontation, in my experience anyway, is quite rare. Um, so in reality, it's not going to stop you going out that much. Uh, and I think, you know, on a this this is about a kind of, this campaign is about structural problems. It's about structural exclusion from the landscape. It's, it's a big picture thing. Uh, we're not here to, yeah, create antagonism on an individual level with any particular landowner or farmer or anything like that. So um, I don't think there's anything politically to be gained necessarily from kind of escalating confrontations or being kind of like aggy for the sake of it. If they ask you to leave and, and that's what feels like the right thing to do, then do it. Um, you know, depending on the situation, um, I'll push it or I won't. You know, uh, we had one time we went on the estate of it's 13,000 acre estate in West Berkshire um, called the Englefield Estate, uh, which is actually owned by the Minister for Access, ironically. Um, <laughs> as you might imagine, very little access on said uh, estate. So this is uh, Richard Bennion, who's uh, in, in DEFRA at the moment in government. Um, you know, and we were sort of just happily sat under a beautiful oak tree by this picturesque lake, you know, tucking into our lunch kind of thing. Uh, and then, you know, the four by fours come, come zooming in and the, the tweed clad gamekeepers get out, uh, you know, and sort of come on all like strong and aggressive or whatever, but they were basically, you know, confronting four people from the Right to Rome campaign. So uh, it didn't go quite how they <laughs> imagined, you know, uh, Sam Lee indeed got out his apple and dusted it off <laughs> on his shirt and uh, gave the institution apple defense. And, uh, but actually, you know, we, and we held our ground because we were like, actually, you know, this is, this is important politically that we're here because it's the access minister, you know. Um, but we actually had, you know, a 40 minute sort of Shakespearean debate by the, the picturesque lake, you know, encompassing pretty much all of the politics of the countryside uh, with moments of agreement and, and shared connection, actually, between, you know, me and this 50 year old gamekeeper, who in theory are very much on the opposite side of the sort of countryside culture wars, you know, he, because he, he loves birds, he loves the land, you know, uh, and we were kind of pointing out the things that we seen and what we cared about as well you know i'm not saying we agreed on everything for sure we definitely looked at the world in a very different way um but actually that conversation went from aggressive macho confrontation to uh, a moment where we were sort of laughing and shaking hands you know um so there can be benefits to holding your ground as well but isn't that part of it i think this this kind of feeds into bigger you know british or global um politics and and society but we do view these people as the enemy. We view the gamekeepers and the landowners as the enemy. And actually, if we viewed, let's say, gamekeepers as a really good example of people who've maybe grown up with the land, live on the land, love the land as they see it, there is a shared passionate connection there. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, obviously, it depends on the gamekeeper and some of them really enjoy their sort of uh, entitlement to go where no one else can go in the landscape uh, and they enjoy that kind of power play. Um, but yeah, some of them will love the same things that you love as well. So I think it's always trying to work. It's always worth looking for that common ground if you can find it. Um, and, you know, I take a sort of slightly cosmic approach, I suppose, to these things. You know, I, I believe that uh, anyone can change their relationship um, to property, to ownership, to exclusion. Um, anyone can have a uh, it's, it's within anyone to have a kind of different kind of conversation um so yeah I, I i will always look for the common ground first as i said we're not we're not here to be uh, engaging in sort of pointless antagonisms uh, and that kind of thing yeah and then um, would you encourage people to join a movement Absolutely. So uh, we're setting up local groups. There's about kind of eight around the country at the moment. Um, you know, 
if you need us to do an event locally just to kind of draw interest and attention and just find those people in your local area who share this passion um, then we're happy to do that um, and those you know basically we have kind of a few core principles which are you know don't don't damage the land we know we're kind of completely non-violent movement uh, and those kind of stuff but basically as long as you respect those principles it's up to you what you do in your local area and we'll do the best thing that we can to support you uh, and encourage you but i think yeah really the the power for this comes from below and it comes from uh, local groups exploring uh, their area um, kind of removing the fence from inside their head uh, and yeah building and developing those those stories that we talked about that highlight what this exclusion from nature is doing to us and why it needs to change yeah okay yeah it makes sense to me and then it's just that's the thing i mean i'm off script here but it's not that there is one but it's just so difficult to argue against i quite agree <laughs> i mean you know we as i said we the the conversation around land uh is a total absurdity i mean why should someone who you know, whose family member was basically a warlord a thousand years ago, still have access to thousands of acres uh, of land that they can exclude the public from. Uh, the public is often paying for that land in some form of subsidies uh, or tax breaks or whatever it is. Uh, you know, that that situation is obviously absurd. Uh, there is no kind of intellectual justification for it. There is no social justification for it. It solely goes on because of power uh, and because of a refusal to have the conversation. Uh, and, you know, the, the people that kind of want to derail that by saying, oh, you know, the public can't be trusted. They might drop a crisp packet or something. I mean, it, it you know, it just flies into the face of the scale of the absurdity that we're confronting here in this country. Yeah. OK. And then just very finally, you know, you've said kind of just hop a fence, but maybe using specific examples, like whether it's farmland. I mean, I live on the edge of a shooting estate, which, you know, I may or may not wander across very regularly. Um, where are the kind of this isn't very eloquent but sort of the most wise places to start your trespassing career and what should you avoid I would say find uh, your local river uh, for me, it, also, it always starts with the river. That is an important, meaningful thing uh, to have a relationship and a connection with. Uh, and it's somewhere where you can make serious kind of uh, ecological impact by starting to act and see yourself as a defender of that space. Uh, uh, and that's just a nice, simple way. To, you know, you don't have to worry about kind of complex map reading and that kind of stuff. Just try and follow the contours of your river, uh, imagining you're in Scotland and you have the right to roam. Um, that, that's where I would start anyway. Uh, you know, that will take you through field fringes. Uh, you know, don't go on the farm crops that's obviously not something we're asking for you know stick to, stick to the field fringes uh go through the woodlands you know if you've got a dog probably keep it on a lead um you know make sure you're not causing any ecological damage when you go um but just enjoy that experience you know and actually the, the wonder of what you will discover will quickly overcome your anxiety about being somewhere you're not supposed to uh and you know the more you do it uh the less that uh, anxiety has any hold on you you know i i actually sometimes forget that i'm trespassing a lot of the time now um just because it's become habitual it's just become part of my life whereas you know at first the same as anyone else you know, looking over my shoulder the sort of heart's beating you know uh, <laughs> i mean that which is crazy right again you know you're you're walking across a, an open field in the middle of the countryside and yet you know uh you're having a kind of like panic attack because of some sort of like mythical line that you've crossed basically that only exists in law yeah, I said finally, but I was wrong. But I think that's the other thing is it's about changing our relationship to the land as well, isn't it? That's what happened to me over the last 10 years is I don't view it as theirs or mine anymore. I view it as ours and I understand the law. I understand what, you know, the, the rules that we've created or that they created are, but I see it all as my space. And I think that's one of the biggest changes. 
absolutely. And that that passage from uh, you know theirs to ours, uh, that is the sort of journey of belonging, basically. Um, you know, I feel so much more rooted uh, in the place that I live now uh, as a result of having explored it uh, uh, now that I actually know it I understand how that landscape fits together um, and that just totally transformed my relationship to where I am uh, and that should be a right that belongs to anyone amazing thank you very much awesome. cheers Matt thanks for listening for more information visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk If you want to get in touch, then I have a new email address, matt at terraincognita.studio. Finally, please do leave us a review on iTunes. They're immensely helpful and help us to reach a wider audience.